We've been told this story that if you check all the boxes, if you do all these great things, then you will be happy. But why do so many of us still feel unfulfilled? Welcome to Wealth and Liberty, where we give you the education, tools, and solutions to go from feeling unrewarded to becoming autonomous with three simple concepts to guide us. Identity, self-development, and financial control. All right, welcome back to Wealth and Liberty. I am excited to hit a current event today, well, probably the biggest current event of all of our lifetimes so far, and probably going to the future when they look back on this and you know chalk it up to being like, well, that was a big mistake. But we're going to talk about the coronavirus and the COVID and whatever the heck else, the lockdown, whatever else we want to call it. And I got a fellow West Point grad, Ryan Spoon, who, I mean, I spend most of my time on LinkedIn. We all know that. And nobody's really talking about this stuff there. And I just find it to be important, you know, one way or the other, is is the virus real? Is the lockdown necessary? You know, it's like, yeah, people are getting sick, of course, you know, but 20% 20% unemployment they're starting to come out with now. And, and it's just all sorts of weird numbers and data. And of course, the way, you know, we've just seen it the last few years, the way our media has just kind of gone nuts with just pushing hysteria constantly. And it's like, this has become something that, it, you know, I haven't watched CNN and Fox and none of that stuff. I haven't watched any of this stuff in years. I get my info from, you know, YouTube and podcasts, you know, personally. And so we're just in a new time and I just really appreciated what Ryan was kind of doing on Facebook, not being crazy, like trying to cause problems and piss people off, but just smartly talking about, hey, I went actually did some research. I didn't just listen to what the people told me. And so I wanted to bring him on and, and just get some perspective from a former military officer who you know, wasn't just going to drink the Kool-Aid. He had, had actually gone in and done some work more than I have, even though I've been t- paying attention a lot. But uh, Ryan, thanks for joining us, man. Yeah, happy to be uh, here. Cool, cool. Um, could you just t- tell us a little bit about your experience? Where were you at in the Army or how long were you in and kind of what you're up to now? And, and then what led you to want to start talking about this stuff openly in, in an environment where people get angry? <laughs> <laughs> like yourself, I went to West Point. I graduated there in 98. I would never describe myself as either a good cadet or a good soldier. I was always much more into critical thinking and a little bit of the rebellious type, but uh, did my duty, served my time and got out. And I work in loss prevention now, which most people think is the security guard at the mall. it's actually more fire prevention is what I do, private fire prevention. And I've always been a numbers guy. So I looked at what they were telling us the numbers were gonna be And early on, when this thing was just breaking out in China, you had UN and WHO officials saying that worldwide, the death toll could be up to 150 million. And I said, oh, well, uh, let's see when they've given us some of these models before. So avian flu and swine flu in 2005, 2009, they predicted similar death tolls. For swine flu, they predicted anywhere between 150 and 550 million people were going to die worldwide. Ended up being just over 12,000 in the U.S. And I don't remember the swine flu death toll in 2009, but it was somewhere, I believe, in the 150,000 range worldwide. But 
not nearly as catastrophic. So I said, okay, so we should maybe take these mathematical projections that are given us with a little bit of a grain of salt. They've used similar tactics on everything from peak oil in the 70s to climate change today. So let's listen to what they're saying, but exercise some discretion here as well. And then the more and more we found out, the more and more the narrative just kind of melted away. And it mm -hmm. became, okay, this is a severe seasonal flu. We're not saying that this is regular flu season, but we're also not going to have 150 million people die worldwide. So Yeah, and I hate how it's, you know, they throw that number out there to, of course, make everybody freak out. It's like, oh, you got to save everybody. It's like, well, we don't mm -hmm. do that with cars. You know, yeah. car accidents all the time. Nobody's talking about the opioid epidemic. And, and of course, it doesn't matter. Now, now we've all told ourselves we got to stay away from everybody and wear masks. And so even as the numbers change, and I was on a family phone call yesterday, and, it's, and you just see, you know, the kind of, well, you know, we're still doing it until they tell us we're allowed to do something else. And yeah. it's like, well, when do we get to think for ourselves? When the numbers clearly aren't that bad, are we going to take a moment to go, Oh, okay. Yeah. I, I honestly haven't yeah. seen, you know, I live in a big populated city. I haven't heard or seen or met anybody or know anybody where it's, it's affected them. And yet you talk to yeah. a nurse and they say, yeah, yeah, that's, it's pretty nasty at the, at the hospitals, but you know, these are older, sicker people for the vast majority of they have a condition. And so we've just put ourselves in a state of fear. And I just personally, I'm like, that's not what we signed up to serve our country for. That's not what liberty is supposed to be about. Mm -hmm. And ahead. I deal all the time in my professional career with uncommon events and low levels of risk. And I still try to prevent even low levels of risk. And so people are saying, well, it only affects older people. You're right, even if it does. And then people are getting afraid and saying, well, I love someone who is older or immunocompromised. And so I say, okay, well, let's be consistent with how we approach risk. Okay. Because that older or immunocompromised person was endangered by every flu season that came along. And you did not realize the level of risk because no one told you to be afraid of it, but that risk was there. So we need to step back a little bit from these anecdotal examples and say, how does this really work? If we're going to shut down our economy on a broad scale, then we need to look at broad numbers, not anecdotal numbers. Right. And we need to say, how many people does the flu kill a year? In 2017, 2018 flu season, the CDC estimates that up to 91,000 people, 91,000 Americans alone, not worldwide, 91,000 Americans died from the flu. The majority of those people had other medical conditions. They were, for the most part, elderly. There was just over 100 children out of that 91,000, so a very tiny number of children that died. The CDC tracks those, each individual child death from the flu. So this is a real risk that is out there that people just didn't recognize the risk. The same as we changed our entire culture, our entire country for 5,000 people dying in 9-11, but we yeah. don't bat an eye when 30,000 Americans die every year from vehicle accidents right. because we've decided that that's a risk that we're willing to accept. And we should take the similar dispassionate approach to is this a reasonable risk that we should accept? And people have not done that.
you know, that's really cool perspective with your background. With because I remember that it's like in the army, we couldn't leave on Friday afternoon until everybody's cars were checked and we did a risk assessment. Like you could yeah. roll out of the parking lot. It's just, you know, it's like, we understand risk. I mean, that's, hey, isn't that what America is? It wasn't that a big risk, you know, yeah. to start this country? Isn't any business entrepreneur, any venture, anytime you make a change, you're making a risk. What is it you think made this one different? Where if the numbers clearly are adding up, why wasn't this a risk we were willing to take that so quickly everybody bought into it? Is it, is that just a thing like our culture's yeah. just at that point now? It's like, well, we jumped the shark. We're just all sheep now. Or is there something else going on? It's herd mentality. And I could dig into my personal speculations on the why of that herd mentality, why this was triggered. But I think that would probably get either politically partisan or it would start to delve into what some people would regard as conspiracy theories. I don't think you need to analyze the why because the what is so apparent. Okay. We don't need to understand why did specific people get afraid. We just need to understand that they did. And the sources of that fear, the sources of the fear were the media. And the media latched on to this story coming out of China. And they said, oh, 60,000 people. Well, wait a minute, 60,000 in a country of over a billion have died. Yeah. And so what exactly are you saying is the risk here? Because they hear these numbers and they say, well, I don't live in a town of 60,000 people. That You're saying that my entire town died. I'm saying, yes, multiples of your entire town die every year from the flu. Mm -hmm. And these are, sound like massive numbers to most people and they sound catastrophic, but these are the realities of everyday life. And we accept those risks every single year, year in and year out. And we're not afraid to go out about our lives during flu season, except this year, because we were told to be afraid by the media. So what's the next risk that people aren't paying attention to, either because of this or something different? Oh, goodness. People will get afraid of everything. I mean, is this going to compound yeah. like just yeah. now? I see, that's what I'm afraid of. It's just everybody's going to see everything as a risk in what is really you know, we're in the fourth stage of the industrial revolution. It's like now people start freaking out about technology and 5G and vaccines. And it's just like, it's like, what's the real risk? I think the real risk is not taking responsibility for your own damn self. And, yeah. <laughs> you know, there will always be a demagogue looking to play upon your fears, mm -hmm. whether they want to make you afraid of nuclear weapons. Why are we not going out and building um, underground bunkers to shelter us from nuclear weapons? There are far more nuclear weapons around today than there were in the 50s, but it was a new risk. They didn't know how to deal with it. They hadn't lived with it. And they were told to be afraid because this was new. It was novel. There's that word again, this, yeah. novel, this novel coronavirus. coronavirus yeah. It's new. It's scary. We don't know what to do about it. And whether you're told to be afraid of nuclear weapons or you're told to be afraid of the Jews or you're told to be afraid of 5G or whatever it is, there's always a demagogue that is clever at manipulating the media that will play upon your fears. But numbers are not terribly fearful if you can stand back and look at them dispassionately and compare them to other forms of risk that we are not afraid of. 
And so that I think is key is that ability to say, what other risk do we have in our lives? And how does this novel risk compare to the risk that we're already accustomed to? Right. You know, that makes me think of the fact that that's why we hold exercises, right? In the military, we do it. We have practice in sports. And there was an exercise in October called Event 201. I don't know if you've heard of it, where the WHO, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, the CDC, and I think like Johns Hopkins held a you know, military-style exercise for what happens with the release of a novel coronavirus. And of Got course, it. a few yeah. months later, it <laughs> happens. And it's just like, well, you know, maybe they were just literally saying, it's like, okay, we already know the flu is going to be out there. We're just going to say it's worse and see how the world reacts, see how the economy reacts. Maybe they need to, you know, not in a conspiracy. Yeah. I mean, we can talk, we could turn that into a conspiracy theory, sure. But it's like, well, it's not because they actually did it. They held the event and now it's playing out the way that they made kind of suggest things we should do, shut down economies and stuff like that. Yeah. And so is that risk mitigation or is that just fear mongering? I don't know. The one thing I found that conspiracy theories always have in common is they're always breed themselves in a situation that is devoid of personal liberty. And whenever you get into these stories of Bill and Melinda Gates going into India and monopolizing the pharmaceutical industry and then making vaccines mandatory by manipulating the Indian government, I don't have all the info on that. Maybe it's a conspiracy, maybe it's not. But I know that if I continue to fight for personal liberty in what we put into our body, they won't ever be able to do that here because they won't be able to take that freedom away from me. And everything from this shutdown, if the government abides by the Constitution and they can't restrict our right to peaceably assemble, then it doesn't matter what conspiracy the WHO or some fearmonger or some industry or Bill Gates tries to impose on us, if we retain our personal liberty, that is the vaccine against conspiracy. That's very well put. I think that's, that's a great way to end it. I mean, this is what this show is all about. It's about controlling your identity from here on out and what impacts you. And it's just like now is a great time in all of human history to start to do that, to take back more of our liberty. And yeah. the Internet's given us that opportunity. Unfortunately, you know, they're also trying to take that away. And so it's like, we got to band together and, and support those who are like, listen, I'm not just going to go along with it. I'm going to do what's smart for me. And if that means wearing a mask, social distancing, sure. But allow me to make that choice is kind of the idea. Absolutely. Cool, cool. Hey, thanks, Ryan. Yeah, man, I just really appreciate your quick perspective on all of this. It's like, I know we could go on for hours and hours and hit every angle. <laughs> I love them. I love it. But, uh, I know you're a busy guy. I just wanted to, you know, have someone kind of smart and what not just me, you know, complaining about stuff <laughs> all the time, you know. So, but uh, appreciate it, man. Let me know if there's anything I can ever uh, do for you or if we can support you here with the show in any way. Sounds great. Thanks for having me. All right, man. Take care. All right. Bye. Thanks for listening to Wealth and Liberty and choosing to learn how to live an autonomous life. Please leave us a review on iTunes and share the show with a friend who you know needs to hear this message. Remember to subscribe at wealthandliberty.us and connect with me, Scott R. Tucker, on LinkedIn.